Hello, everybody. Good afternoon, everybody, or good morning, or good evening, or whatever it is, whenever it is, at wherever it is you're listening to. Welcome to the show, the big show, the largest and most incredibly well-received podcast that is recorded in our car. And yes, we're in our car today. We are heading north. We're heading towards the old homestead after a busy day of not getting having anything go right. <laughs> well, I'm not going to say that. It was not, not a horrible day. It was a beautiful day, and and we did um, we did take care of a couple of uh, friends of ours. Got them hooked up on on a project, so that's good. But other than that, it's been kind of a whiff of a day. Yeah. Well, so working out. Pressing right along. We're going to use this point in time to podcast and we got an interesting subject that we've talked about before we're going to talk about again because it's a it's a critically important one to a lot of people it's something a lot of people in the prepping community and not just in the prepping community but in a lot of communities have to deal with that is the reluctant spouse getting the spouse on board and spice has been doing some learning and some reading and she's got a few things she wants to talk to you about and i'm going just to provide pithy examples he's your color commentator Uh, i'm the color commentator yes and you're likely to hear both photography and pro football references because he's good at those that's what i do so the the basic topic i've been reading about lately is about how humans make decisions and why and in what kinds of ways their decisions aren't really maybe in their best interest or aren't maybe the most logical. Because when I look at the reluctant spouse issue, first thing is I would absolutely not recommend lying to or manipulating in a negative way your spouse about what's going on. Because I'm certainly living with him every day of my life, and... Potential future emergencies are potential and future emergencies. Sacrificing a good relationship with the person I live with every day Whereas we're going home and having dinner tonight, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Not going to sacrifice the relationship with the guy I live with. So this is not about being at all dishonest. It's not even about being manipulative or sneaky. But it is about recognizing some of the ways that people as a group tend to make strange decisions and how to frame your arguments to avoid having your spouse make an unreasonable decision based on those flaws. Part of having the reluctant spouse, there's so many things behind reluctant spouse. You know, there's so much, we all have, you know, various different, everybody has a different relationship with their spouse and their spouse you know, and even you have a couple where both spouses have a different relationship with each other. I mean, one person may see their relationship as one thing, and one person may be that guy who doesn't even want to think about the word relationship because that's not what we do. You know, so it's it's kind of you can be on two completely different planes and still coexist, and that's okay. But what happens is when you're trying to convince your spouse that you want to do whatever it is we're going to say prepping in this case, if they are not on the same plane, you may well just not be able to line up your uh, your views with their views. So there needs to be some give and take, some understanding, 
uh, and that needs to come on both sides. And, you know, one of the things that, that we're talking about here is to get communication going effectively. And communication going effectively doesn't say, doesn't mean I need to be more forceful in what I'm trying to say so she finally gets it or he finally understands it. I don't need, I need to talk louder or I need to shout or I need to manipulate. No, that's not what we're talking about. What you need to, what you're talking about is understanding what some of the stuff is that's, that's helping her to remain reluctant in dealing with that. This is actually part four of a series uh, that has four parts so far. Yeah. We, we, uh, three we'll, we did some time ago, and you can find the reluctant spouse parts one, two, and three on right. other places on 3BY. Okay. Right. And we're going to have the, and the story that goes along with this podcast. We'll put links to all that. So. Yeah. So what are four, the four things that you came up with that you wanted to talk about that are revolve around this um, dissonance? First thing I probably want to do here, open this up. I want to uh, credit this guy, uh, Dr. Scott Hoytel. He did a great course for on behavioral economics. And we're huge fans of the great courses. We've got most of them, frankly. Yeah, they're adult college-level learning. Thegreatcourses.com. They have audio books. They have DVDs. They have streaming service. We caveat we are not in any way associated with the great courses we pay for them we pay for them we are not we're not affiliates of theirs we could probably get them to sponsor the podcast if we keep saying nice things about them but that's not what we're doing that's not our deal we're not in any way associated with them but we are long long time customers huge amounts of of business we've gone their way and uh they're also on audible which we're audible fans Another one that sponsors podcasts. Maybe I should get them to sponsor this because we're giving them free ads. Um, Audible, you can go on there and get the great courses. And if you sign up for the Audible, it does sound like an ad, doesn't it? It's not an ad. I'm not getting paid. Um, You can sign up for their their two books a month plan, which is what we've been on for like ever. They... uh, you can get two of the great courses, and these courses are often 12, 18, 24, or longer hours long. So you could really, you really get to dig into Get a into lot of learning it. in, yeah. Now, some of them aren't, frankly, fantastic, and they come with a 100% guarantee, which I've used. In the Audible, you can return ones that you don't like, and there's several I haven't liked, but I've just been able to return them. So. Or they, it wasn't that the course was bad, they just weren't me, or you, they weren't what I expected. You can just return it. So... There's our there's my one digression and it was about the source of you know where this comes from. The only reason I brought it up is because I'm a scientist and we cite our sources. It's kind of what we do, and I make, jotted these notes down while I was listening to his audio book. I'd stop at the end of the drive, not while I was driving, by the way. Jot the notes down, and these are the four points I came up with. First one was it's about future discounting. It is they actually did some studies. Where they say, okay, you've got a medical treatment. It costs X amount of money, a substantial amount of money. And they ask people if they'd be willing to do it. People were willing to spend more money to reduce their chance of getting a nasty disease from 10% to 0% than they were 
to cut their risk of getting the same disease from 90% to 50%. So it was worth more to them to bring the risk from 10 to 0 than it was to bring the risk from 90 to 50. Nine out of 10 chances of getting this disease down to 50% chance. Think about that for a minute. And most people would rather do the other? And yes, That's, most people would rather, they they would choose makes, to spend the money in the 10 to 0, but not in the 90 to 50. That makes no sense. The math does not work out at all, but it reflects a tendency of human. It's, this one isn't the future discounting. I kind of jumped ahead of myself. I was going to say, yeah, this, uh, this one isn't future uh, discounting. We tend to overvalue small percentages. Ah, overvalue. Uh, oh, a 1% a real change will feel much more significant to us at the end of the scale. The difference between 99 and 100% or between 0 and 1% feels much bigger to us dust devil. than the difference between 36% and 37%. I saw a dust devil. I saw that. It, I guess it's getting dry. It's been getting dry, yes. I've been watering. So people tend to overvalue small percentages. So when you, one way this can affect prepping is I've had it come up in some conversations I've had with people about it, start talking about being prepared for this or that scenario. What they'll want to do is come up with the one, oh, yeah, but if Yellowstone blows up, there's nothing we can do about that. So why bother? What they're doing is overvaluing the extremely low percentage risk. And ignoring the significant reduction of risk, because there's a lot of other things the prepping could defend against, but those lie kind of in the middle of the probability scale, so they're not paying much attention to those. They're over-focusing on the very small percentage of events that you really can't do anything about. If a meteor lands on your head, sorry, a meteor just landed on your head. You're not prepped for that. So... So how does this directly correlate to the reluctant spouse? That might be part of the reluctance is they see some things. They're going to have to make some sacrifices to prep. They can bring to mind some things where that prepping wouldn't help, and they mentally overvalue that those small individual situations and mentally undervalue a wide range of situations in which the preps would help because the extremes of the probability scale get our attention more. I got to be honest with y'all. That's one of the problems that we, this is a big problem in the prepping world. This whole thing is a big problem because so much of the time, and we talk about this in, in our podcast and, and article, uh, we need to move beyond Thunderdome. Yeah. This is the same thing. So many of the time, not just the reluctant spouse, but the prepper themselves can't realistically understand true risk. They're overvaluing the very, very, very small likelihood event. Because in they're their very lifetime. dramatic. Because it's so dramatic, exactly. And you never know. And, and yes, as we say in that podcast, and yes, as we say all the time, Yellowstone will erupt again. Yes, it will. An asteroid, a killer asteroid will hit the Earth again. It will happen. There will, will be a pandemic. 
that wipes out a huge amount of the population. It will happen. The question is, is that more likely to affect your life than an auto accident? No. Is it more likely to affect your life than a two-week power outage from some type of natural disaster? No. Is it more likely to, you know, the things that are more likely to affect your life are the things that we need to concentrate on. And they're also very good selling points to the reluctant spouse. For example, hey, remember a couple of years ago when we lost electricity from that ice storm for several days? We would have been in much better shape had we blank. Yeah. It's something they can relate to. It's something that makes sense. It is the truth. And frankly, you know, it is the right approach. So the cognitive behavioral researchers who discovered this mental flaw, they were looking for ways around it. They actually found one. Cool. People aren't good with the percentage kind of thing. So if you put it in proportions instead of percentages, it's mathematically saying exactly the same thing. But our brains compute it differently because the numbers are smaller. So if you tell people uh, for that one more person out of 10 will not get this disease because of the treatment, or four more people out of 10 will not get the disease because of this treatment, then they understand perfectly well which treatment is worth more money and which they should pay more for. So what you're saying is the way you communicate is key. Yeah. And you put it in proportions instead of talking about percentages or abstract math or when you say low risk, high risk, uh, some people's eyes just glaze over because they turn off that mental switch, which I hate, that says, I'm not good at math, and that it gives them an excuse to shut their brain down entirely. Most excellent wine. <laughs> Perhaps I've heard it a time or two. Well done. <laughs> so that's a good way around that one. But you brought up another good one while you were on the ice storm one. Future discounting. Another thing people will tend to do is that if you make two choices, you can have $100 now, or you can have $110 a week from now. And both of those things are absolutely guaranteed, so they know it's going to happen either way, barring the meteorite falling on their head. A surprisingly high percentage of them will take the 100 bucks right now. Even though that is a 10% increase in value in a single week, they people value things they can get their paws on right this very instant much more than they value things in the future. I got a perfect example of this from the football world. Okay, football analogy here. This just happened in the draft. Team has already chosen a chosen a player in the second round draft. So they don't have a second round of the draft. They don't have another second rounder, or they don't have a third rounder. And there's still a player out there they really, really want. So, they trade for somebody else's second round draft pick, and give them next year's second round draft pick. So, it's a trade for trade, even up, assuming that the teams finish about where they did this year. Right? So, what team is going to make that trade? Nobody's going to make that trade, because why put off getting a player this year, when you have to wait till next year. So what they have to do is they throw in another draft pick next year or this year, a second draft pick. So you're trading two for one. 
the second draft pick is the future discount. Right. And people do significant future discounting, particularly when they don't know exactly when the future is going to be, as is true in many prepping situations. Like in this NFL draft, for example, the rule of thumb is if you trade for a second-round pick this year, you have to give up a third-round, an additional third-round pick. One round below where you are, you have to give up not only your pick in that round, but an additional pick. A second and a third next year to pay for a second this, this year. year. Exactly. A second this year and a third next That's how it works. It's a full round discount. And that's a huge hit. Now, if a team can be smart about it, if they can get ahead of the curve, a very good way to build through the draft is to say, okay, I'm willing to trade off this year's and, tr- and move down. I'm willing to move down. I'm willing to move down and pick up future draft picks. And this is a good way to build a team if you can do it. Because they value this year right now much more than next year, future discount. So what you do about this guy is part of the reason apparently people are doing it is because their future selves and their future situations are sort of hazy, ephemeral, vague things in their mind where their needs right now are very direct and in front of them and they can uh, describe them very clearly. So the more concrete you can make the future situation, the more believable to the person you're talking to you make the future situation, the less they will discount the future and the more they'll be willing to give up now to be prepared then. So not only can you mention, hey, remember that ice storm last year, wouldn't it have been nice to be prepared? You can uh, rephrase that in the form of, hey, if we have another ice storm like this next year, and instead of being worried about the pipes freezing all night, and instead of spending all night downstairs running that uh, propane heater and worrying about the CO2 buildup and maybe poisoning ourselves to death, if instead we had this a heating system, backup heating system we knew that was going to work, and we had it tested, and the power goes out, and everybody's freaking out about their pipes freezing, and it's dark, and it's cold, and all we got to do is walk right in there, and we flick that switch, and the backup heating system comes on, and we sleep nice and comfortable and cozy. It's very concrete. And the other really good thing about what we're doing is, this is a high-probability event. You're going to lose power again. Yeah, you're just going to. This is a high-probability, and high-probability events makes it an easy sell. Yeah, and it's a very honest sell, because this is a highly likely situation. It, in fact, happened to Salty and I this year. Yeah, we were We, we had were our primary heating system die just uh, before, died, yeah. the, uh, before the snow died, and we just walked over there to their backup heating system and clicked it on, and life was good. Yeah, we still haven't replaced it. <laughs> so yeah. we've got we've got the replacement here. We just haven't done it yet. Haven't put it in. So what's up next? Loss aversion. People hate losses. Uh, stock traders know this a lot. It's like if a stock goes down, people will hold on to it rather than sell it because if it if they sell it, they've admitted that they lost money on it. 
So they keep a hold of it, and it keeps going down, and they keep a hold of it, and it keeps going down, and they end up selling it for far less money than they could have got if they'd have cut their losses and run. That is loss aversion. And when you are prepping, there is some loss involved. There's a loss of current resources and current effort and time. And sometimes preps just need to be discarded. It's sometimes just, they it, do, because it's like an insurance policy you bought and then never needed, thank goodness. But that's exactly what it's like. An insurance policy it, it you is buy an insurance policy. And you, and you never need it. So then that's a good way to sell it. Yeah. Actually that's part of one of the other prepper reluctant spouse things. We yeah. we talked about that in one of the other ones. So it is insurance. It's food insurance. But, There's a company out there that calls it food insurance. Yeah. I've actually got another tactic for a loss aversion that was recommended by the cognitive behavioral science guys. And it's to reframe the same situation in terms of what you're gaining. So they're talking about, well, we won't have the money to do to go on this vacation. We won't be able to uh, upgrade to the new car as soon as we wanted to. Whatever it is, they see the money, you know, they regret not being able to spend the money on today. Instead, you turn that around and you can use the, it, it comes right in, holds hands with the last one about making it concrete. You make it clear to them exactly what all they're gaining, and you make that as explicit and obvious and upfront as whatever thoughts are going through their head about what they're giving up right now. So you focus on what's being gained, not on what's being lost, and that simple shift of focus, although the facts haven't changed, can really change people's attitudes. And then you make it concrete. That's your fourth point. Yeah. Um, I, actually, fourth, uh, we already talked about making it concrete. With the future discounting. That's oh, okay, sorry. The uh, fourth point was, well, I told you photography was going to come in here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Suppose that he wanted to spend $800 on a Tamron lens, which was a pretty darn good lens. Yes. In fact, the it's the twenty four or twenty eight to seventy four, whatever it is, two point eight. Yeah. That's just being released for the Sony Alpha or Sony E mount. Almost as if we had been discussing one of these lenses earlier today. <laughs> and uh, further suppose, and I don't even know if this is true, that there's a cheap knockoff of this that costs two hundred bucks, which is, is not nearly as good. There is not, but there are other options that are not nearly as good that cost two hundred bucks. So, for example, the twenty four to seventy. Okay. Um, that is a 5.6, yeah, it's it's the kit lens. It's the kit lens. Now, okay? Salty's setting up to do this professionally, so he actually needs something better than that. Yes. Uh, and I get that. Although so for the kit lens, it's not I was that a, I'm actually not a reluctant spouse in, no. in this equation. Because she I realizes been, these are tools to make money with. Yeah. But if I had been, then if he wanted to get me to, to agree to this $800 lens happily, the best tactic would have been for him to tell tell me about this $2,500 Sony lens. Right. The, the G Master, which is, it is the dogs and cats meow, but it's 2500 bucks. Yeah. And I wouldn't, this is a lens that I would never buy simply because I don't like it that much, $2,500. But I could still use it as a tool. It's kind of a, kind of a little thing. I could still use it as a tool, as an example. And it uh, would be a slightly better lens for the mission than the $800 one he's talking about getting. That's true. It would be. And if he told me about that lens, it would be much easier to get me to agree to the $800 one. So the mission here is 
if there is a more expensive option presented, people are a lot less more likely to agree to an intermediate option than if you only put the low option and the middle option on uh, the table. They're like, nope, that middle option's too high. So you put the low, the middle, and the high out there. They're like, well, that. The middle one sounds pretty reasonable. Why don't we go that way? Salespeople do this all the time. All, all the time. All the time. Yeah. They're all over they this. They know this all is... about this one. And they'll often, sometimes they don't even stock some of the ridiculously expensive high option because they know almost nobody will choose it. And they'll stick it at the top of the menu too. They call it decoying. Uh, I don't want you to intentionally mislead your spouse, but... I don't think it would be a bad thing to lay options on the table that you are, you actually would think are a good idea and would like, but think the spouse won't go for that one. You might well be right, but if you at least show that option, it might incline somebody to be more open to the intermediate option. All right. Not talking about deception, just talking about keeping our the way human brains naturally work from getting in your way when you're trying to get these ideas across to your spouse. And if you can't make things make sense to your spouse, well, then maybe you ought to rethink them yourself because maybe they aren't completely reasonable. All of us are unreasonable human beings at times. But those are just uh, some ways to phrase your arguments that might be helpful. Okay, and I'm going to wrap this up with a pro tip. And, you know, actually we were talking about photography and lenses and stuff like that. This is just for any lens and photography geek that happens to be out there. No, I'm not normally a a person who will use a discount third-party lens. I don't really, I just don't generally buy things like Tamron's. However, um, with the quality of the new lens they've got coming out and from what I've seen of it, I'm going to take a good look at it. I'm going to buy it and I'm going to... I'm buying it from a place that I can return it if I don't like it. And uh, I'm going to give it a try because that is a huge price difference. And from what I've seen from the, the, the charts and the and the specs and the, and the samples, it's pretty good. So, yeah, normally I'm a manufacturer-only type guy. Just an FYI. I know you really don't. But uh, we'll let you know if we don't like it. All right. Thank you for listening, and bye-bye. Bye-bye.